Good morning. Good morning. Hope everyone slept well. See you good today. Some slept better than others, I know. Okay, so what we want to talk about today is the, the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path. The path to the end of suffering, which just conveniently brings along with it wisdom and compassion as promises. So, <clears throat> the, eight, the eightfold path, the eight factors are right view, which is also sometimes described as right, right understanding, and right intention, which can also be thought of as right motivation. These two together make up the wisdom component. These are followed then by the next three, which are right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And these make up the virtue component. And then the last three, right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness, they make up the, the third final component, which is called meditation. So there's really three pillars to the Dharma, wisdom, virtue, and meditation. Um, the wisdom component is both the beginning and the end of the path. It's the beginning because you need to have you need to have some intellectual understanding of the Dharma uh, to even begin the path. And so, yeah, this this is this is this is what will give rise to the right intention, and out of the right intention will flow uh, the practice of virtue and the practice of meditation. I'll point out to you that that all of the intellectual part of it is all in the very first factor of uh, right view. Everything else, the other seven, are all practices. They, they're practices that need to be understood, but they, they're all practices. So. All, all of the head part is in the first one. Right view or right understanding. Uh, now the wisdom part is also the end of the path. Because the intellectual understanding that you gain in the beginning, that's referred to as mundane right view. As you practice the path, you come to realize uh, experientially, in a very profound way, the the truths that you originally absorbed as an intellectual understanding. You experience insight, and the insight leads to awakening. And it is the awakened mind that holds supra-mundane right view and supra-mundane wisdom, true wisdom. So. There's a lot of interesting things about the way the Buddha formulated the Dharma. Because 
Well, we've been talking about the Four Noble Truths, the fourth of which is the Eightfold Path. And when we go to Right View, the first thing we're going to find, what is Right View? Right View is understanding the Four Noble Truths. There's a lot of kind of circularity, and it keeps opening up to deeper and deeper and deeper levels. And you even see this in the way the Eightfold Path is formulated. It starts with wisdom, but it also ends with wisdom, but with a different kind of wisdom. Um, the eight factors of the path are not, other than the fact that you need some degree of understanding before you're even interested in continuing, the eight factors are not something that are meant to be practiced in sequence. They are meant to be practiced simultaneously. They are mutually reinforcing. Um, they've been compared to the strands that make up a cable. And if any strand is missing, then the cable is proportionately weaker. Which is one of the problems that we talked about on Friday night. All the emphasis on meditation, that's only one of three pillars. Things don't stand up very long without mutual support. And, of course, it's only three strands of the cable. So, uh, all of the eight factors need to be understood and employed, uh, and then they work with each other to bring about the desired result. When you have, when you have established a certain degree of right view or right understanding, then right intention will arise. And uh, this, sets, this, this gives you the motivation to understand what virtue is all about and try to introduce that into your life. And it gives you the motivation to begin to practice meditation and to understand its dimension. The end of the path, the wisdom, is achieved as a result of insights. These are experiences that you have by practicing meditation. The practice of meditation refines your mental abilities in such a way that you begin to see and understand what was there all the time. You see, there's nothing hidden. The, the truth behind the delusion is staring you in the face all the time. And you're not discovering something new, you're uncovering something that was always there. Or something that's always there is becoming revealed because you now have an ability to see in a way you didn't before. And that's, that is the meaning of insight. It's an accumulation of experiences which, to a greater or lesser degree, in each one of those experiences, you're seeing things as they really are, rather than in the distorted way that you've seen them before. That's what an insight is. And the more of those that you have, and the stronger they are, the more you recognize and appreciate them when you see them. And the more you apply the understanding that comes from the, an experience of insight to what you're experiencing the rest of the time when it's not so clear. These are what produces the change in the way your mind works. Does that make sense to you? Go through that just again. When you meditate, 
your mind comes to work much, much better. You're cultivating the faculty of stable attention. And as anybody who meditates knows, our attention is just always going all over the place. When you can stabilize your attention, it allows you to see and understand so many things that you can't when it's constantly moving. The other factor is mindfulness. The mindfulness, which is that enhanced power of conscious awareness, that you're taking in more information, you're seeing that information more clearly as it really is, you're more fully conscious. So meditation cultivates stability of attention, which is what samadhi means, concentration, stability of attention, and mindfulness. And when you have improved stability of attention and mindfulness, both on the cushion and off, you're going to, be ha- you're going to begin having glimpses of things as they really are. Those glimpses, there can be a few, there can be many. They can be weak, they can be powerful, they can knock you off your feet. You can have those experiences and not really realize the import of them and sort of experience a bit of amazement or puzzlement or whatever and then move on. Or you can recognize and appreciate what they are and really grasp what's being offered to you in that moment of seeing, in that moment of insight. You can dally along having experiences of insight, but never carrying them over into all of the other times during your day when you're seeing things the way that you always see them. Or you can take the understanding that emerged so clearly in that moment of insight, and then on those other times when it's not so clear, look and see, this is really true now, even though it's not so obvious. And those are the ways that you reinforce your insight and you cultivate your insight to the point that is going to produce a change in the way your mind works, a change at the intuitive level of the way your mind works. And you're going to begin to always see things from a different vantage point. That's that's when you get the infrared and x-ray vision. I should have said depth perception. That would have been way safer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you see, the way this path works as a path is that you use meditation to cultivate those abilities. The insights, large or small, depend on you having a mind that's capable of generating those sorts of experiences. Insight, our our meditation in turn, depends on virtue. Uh, To the extent that you haven't practiced virtue, your mind is extremely distracted by desire and ill will. And it's not only distracted by those things, it's severely clouded by those things, and clouded by the self-attachment that is at the root of your desire and your ill will. The other thing is if you're not leading a virtuous life, you have more than a few causes for worry and remorse. And these are huge obstacles. 
So as I mentioned this either yesterday or Friday night. You, your meditation progress is going to be limited if you haven't undertaken the practice of virtue then how far you're going to be able to go in your meditation practice is similarly limited. You're going to reach a point where it's, you're just not making the kind of progress and instead you're having a lot of really weird and uncomfortable and unpleasant kind of experiences, but uh, it's, it's not ripening the way that it should. So that's how these pillars support each other. Okay. Yeah. Would you um, talk a little bit more about about the distinction between attention, stable attention, and mindfulness? Uh, yes. That that's <laughs> yeah. That's a very good question. Um, of course, if you come to this with an open mind. Can you repeat the question? Oh, oh, can I speak more about the question? The difference between stable attention and mindfulness. If you come to this path with an open mind and you read these, there's eight parts to the path, and you see that one of them is concentration, that's one-eighth of the whole path, and mindfulness is another one, it's another one-eighth of the whole path. And then you listen to somebody that says, mindfulness means paying attention. <laughs> And you say, hmm, one, one, I guess the Buddha just liked eights and seven wasn't good enough, so. <laughs> they are, they are different mental faculties. Um, I think we all know what attention is. It's that focal point in our overall field of conscious awareness. That moving, shifting focal point that allows us to zoom in, to get very analytical, to take things apart. Um, but the rest of the field of conscious awareness is what we might call peripheral awareness. It's, it's something different that's there at the same time. And these two, you tend when you have more concentrated attention, you have less peripheral awareness. When you have more peripheral awareness, attention is not quite so concentrated. So they're, they're competing with each other for some inner resource. Well, that inner resource is it, it's consciousness itself. And what mindfulness means is it has two components. One is, one is a training, and that's training yourself not to lose peripheral awareness while you're paying attention. It also means training yourself to use peripheral awareness to be aware of what's going on in your mind while you're paying attention and generating intentions. It allows you to have that clear comprehension. If you, if you are doing something, anything you're doing and attention is focused, if you can simultaneously be aware of what's going on in your mind, why I'm doing what I'm doing, moment by moment, why I'm saying what I'm saying, uh, and, and whether or not what I'm doing and saying is, you know, makes sense in terms of my values and goals and things like that. 
then you have mindfulness. So part of it is training. Training yourself not to lose peripheral awareness and training yourself to use some of that capacity for peripheral awareness to know what's going on in your own mind. The other part of mindfulness is, is just the sheer amount of conscious power your mind has. If you don't increase the conscious power of your mind, every time you focus your attention, peripheral awareness disappears. The only way you can do what I just described is if you've increased the conscious power of your mind so that you can still focus intensely without losing peripheral awareness and while sustaining uh, uh, an introspective awareness of what's going on in your mind. So this is the kind of mind that now is going to be a powerful tool for investigating reality, for seeing what's really been going on the whole time, and seeing through your delusions. You can, as, as reality unfolds in front of you, moment by moment by moment, you can use your attention with its analytical powers to zoom in on things, to, to, to just hit on everything as it's happening and, and see what's going on. You can use your uh, mindfulness to monitor the whole process, to put the whole thing together. Your attention brings with it a lot of the delusion because it's a complex analytical process. And it's like math. It, what, it, what it shows you depends on the assumptions that you started with. And so uh, when you pay attention to something and observe it analytically, you bring along your baggage. And you see it through the lens of that baggage. If you have really strong peripheral awareness, peripheral awareness doesn't do that. It just <coughs> takes it in the way it is, sort of holistically, doesn't isolate any parts of it, it just takes in the picture of what's happening. And it's free of most of that kind of baggage. So when you have that peripheral awareness at the same time you're zooming in on something, it makes the illusion stand out. Because here you've got just what is, and here you've got a piece of it magnified, but distorted. And you can see that, that you know, the part in here is distorted compared to everything out there. And so you become aware of the distortion. That's what mindfulness is. Increasing the power of your mind and using this other faculty of peripheral awareness. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Would you give us an example of the, the, the power of concentration, which includes the delusion, while using the peripheral awareness, which does not. Just something concrete so I could recognize it again. Okay, okay. yeah, I've got a little bit distracted hooking up my microphone. Could you ask that again? And then... Could you give us an example of using the conscious power of the mind while being having that peripheral, with its delusion, as well while using the peripheral awareness, which does not have the illusion, I'm wondering if you could give yeah. us an example of what that would look like. Yeah, let me give you an example, you know, to make, uh, uh, yeah, the question is, can I give you an example of using focused attention and mindful awareness at the same time in a way that makes the, uh, the illusion that is, that you're participating in evident. Yeah. 
And that's a very good question. I'm going to use an example that, uh, I'm going to try to think of an example that is uh, <coughs> sufficiently dramatic to make, to make it clear. Okay. So, somebody says something to you that pushes one of your buttons, right? What does that mean that it pushes your button? It actually means that somewhere in your past experience, something has happened and it had a strong effect on you. And now, anytime something else new happens that reminds you at an even subconscious level of that initial event, you react as if you were back in the original situation. That's a nature of that's the nature of the mind's conditioning. And, and all of our buttons are really, whether we realize it or not, whether we understand it or not, we know we've got buttons. And what our buttons are is they're portions of our past conditioning that is really powerful. And if the right trigger is touched, they're going to, they're going to go into effect. Without mindfulness, you focus very intensely when that happens. Somebody says something that pushes your button, you focus on what they said, you have a really strong emotional reaction, you are filled with being aware of that emotional reaction. Spontaneously, your words or actions in response to that begin to come forth. And all of your conscious power is in paying attention to what he said, the way I feel, and what I'm going to do about it. Now, if you have, if you have mindfulness, there's a part of you that's standing back and watching this whole thing, and says, "Wait a minute, this is somebody I love. Wait a minute, this situation, this doesn't make any sense in this situation. Wait a minute, the things that I'm saying are, are they're, they're hurtful. They're creating problems. They're not helpful at all." And then you start to, that, that, that's an example of beginning to see through, uh, does that help? That does help, and it reminds me of one of the peripheral awarenesses that I could add to your example, which was, I, and I thought this not too long ago, where I thought, you know, that was just a casual comment they made. They weren't, they weren't throwing a dagger. This was not a big deal. This was not a whole critique on your life. Yeah. This was just something they said, and it so happened that it hit my a spot in me, which was vulnerable. That's right. Yeah. yeah, it's another way we can talk about this is we're always going through life taking things personally. That's this idea we have of who we are that's conditioned by our past, and we're all set to react out of that. You know, whether it's positive or negative, you know, we're taking things personally. We have this imaginary person that we think we are, and we interpret everything in, the, in, in uh, terms of that. But if you have this larger peripheral awareness, you realize it's not that way at all. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Before we get enlightened, we're likely to respond to our button pushing, and uh, even though we begin to get a little bit more clear on the space between stimulus and response and go, oh, I don't have to, my hair's not really on fire. 
there's still that that space isn't quite wide enough. Is there some gambit, some prosthetic to to <laughs> widen it? I, 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 you know, just a, a small floor jack would do it. Yeah, the, the, the practice of mindfulness does that, and it's a progressive process. And it goes deeper and deeper. So, so the example I gave is where mindfulness is revealing to you the way in which you're being controlled by your past conditioning. Um, and first time that happens, mindfulness really might not be strong enough and didn't kick in quickly enough to keep you from doing the same thing. But if you were really mindful, you've, you've, you've transmitted some new information back to that part of your mind that set this in motion. And so next time, you're more likely to catch yourself a little earlier in the process. But what's really important is, in, in the scenario I've described, there's a part of your mind that's recognizing this isn't working, that this isn't right, that I'm responding to a situation that doesn't exist that I'm responding to this person as if they were somebody that they're not. That's all new information to that part of your mind that makes you react. And if you hold that in your awareness, you give that information a good long time to trickle down. And that part of your mind that's been producing this reaction for all these years, it's not stupid. If it gets the information, it starts to change. And the gap you're talking about grows bigger Eventually, you come to the point where you just don't react. That button's gone. You don't react to that one anymore. It's changed. Or the only time you react to it is, is if, if it's really much, much more accurately similar to whatever established it in the first place. But that's what happens. Now, this is an example of conditioning. But the thing is that we have this primal conditioning, which causes us to think of ourselves in a particular way, and believe uh, in the accuracy of the way we view the world. That's what we're going to get into, the, the, uh, the three characteristics, the three things about the way life really is that are in direct contradiction to the way we're always thinking there. Okay. So mindfulness does exactly the same thing there. It allows you to see that I keep reacting as though I am the self, but I'm not really the self. I don't have to react that way. And that kind of information trickles down too. And that begins to change that perception. And so mindfulness brings about an insight, and the insight produces an inner change in exactly the same way that mindfulness brings about a more mundane insight into uh, the fact that you're acting out of conditioning and allows the conditioning to change. It's exactly the same process. And we've got a lot of people buying into that process because it can help them get control over some of their buttons. But the purpose of it, that's just, that's just a nice benefit along the way. That's part of good in the, beginning, in the beginning and good in the middle. But if you keep doing that and you do it in the right way, it starts to change these perceptions uh, you, you, you gain super mundane insight and you, you attain the goal of the path. Yeah? It just, I mean, it struck me this weekend, and it's 
talking there too, that really the response is compassion for ourselves and other people because we're laboring under such a huge delusion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, people can't help it because yeah. they don't know, and we don't know. It's just like, like, wow. That's right. That's why genuine compassion is a result of insight. In the Mahayana tradition, where you try to make your whole path be for the sake, for the benefit of all beings, and you're trying to cultivate compassion, they say you do not have true compassion. You have a facsimile of compassion until you've achieved insight, until you've achieved at least the first stage of awakening. That's the first time in your life that you're capable of generating this true compassion that comes from understanding exactly what you said. We're all caught in the midst of the same delusion, and we're making ourselves suffer, and we're making each other suffer, and everything else. And boy, does that bring up the compassion. Makes you want to do something about it. Okay. I've got to get better at not losing the thread of where I am. <laughs> I'm in confusion, so I'm not sure how this is going oh, to come out. Okay. Um, I, I get how important virtue is uh, to be an underlying foundation for uh, right view and mindfulness. And uh, my question is this. I mean, the truth is that these houses that we live in, they're not safe. Okay. And so we're all like wired for, for um, uh, what is it, um, survival, yeah? And so there's this need for safety. So um, through that, there can be craving for all the things that go along with that, to be well, to be safe, to be coddled and cared for and loved and all these things, these human things that we need, so that then we have the craving. My question comes into virtue, like I, I, um, there's you know, the, the nature of virtue, I mean is it, is it that the, the entire perception shifts such that there is no need for safety any longer or that the, the underlying um, fears are mindfully uh, observed such that they don't drive the behavior and that shifts the virtue? No. Mm -hmm. do, do, do you catch where I'm, I'm at? I mean, I'm, I'm not really sure about this, but the virtue piece is, is questionable to me. Okay, I, I, I can see the ideas that you're playing with here and trying to get a handle on. I'm not sure exactly what your question is. But let me say that. No. Um, initially, we're driven by craving, which is self-protective. So when we begin to practice virtue, and, and actually we're going to hopefully have time to talk about all of this in, in the appropriate linear sequence, but anyway, when you begin to practice virtue, you begin by trying not to do things out of this self-interest that are harmful to other people. Uh, and as, as that matures, then you start to see other people in the same way that you see yourself. So you're not only refraining from causing harm, but you're also taking care of other people 
the same way that you take care of yourself. And you do continue to take care of yourself. You need to. Um, now, as it matures further, and as you have true compassion, and as you have, you, you're, you have more wisdom, you have more insight, you begin to treat this body and mind with all of the same respect that you've learned to treat that body and mind and that body and mind and that mind. So now, you're still taking care of yourself. And you're still taking care of everyone else, but you're taking care of, of all of us equally. You're not going to overreact in taking care of yourself, especially in a way that's harmful or detrimental to somebody else. I don't know if this touches on what you were, I, I, I had a feeling it was kind of what you were talking about, even though the question was there. Yeah, okay. That's okay, thank you. All right. Anyway, so, the, uh, we're going to look at wisdom, and we're going to look at right view and right intention. And then afterwards, we'll have some time to look at uh, virtue, I hope. Uh, and we've already talked a lot about meditation in the past, and we'll continue to talk about meditation in the future and tying all these things together. But let's, let's get to the wisdom part of it, the right view part of it. Um, if you look in the sutras, what is right view? Right view is understanding the Four Noble Truths. Well, okay, that just brought us in a circle right back to right view. Okay? So, if you look in the sutras and you, you read some different sutras, you say, oh, okay, there's one called the Samaditi Sutra, the right view sutra. <laughs> you look in this one and it, it spells it out, out a little more clearly. So what we find is that, yes, we've seen up to this point, that our problems originate in the delusion that we hold, in our inability to see things as they really are. So part of right view is obviously going to be to understand the truth behind our deluded perceptions, which is those three characteristics. So we're going to talk about those first. And then what you'll find is the next thing after that is to understand causality and karma. And we'll talk about that one next. So let's look at let's look at the three characteristics. Now the first characteristic as it's presented in the sutras is usually described as impermanence. And then later Buddhists uh, preferred to describe it in terms of emptiness. But what's being addressed here involves both impermanence and emptiness. They are very closely related. They're not really separable from each other. Um, and basically what it's saying is that everything is impermanent and empty, whatever that means. Yes, absolutely everything is impermanent and empty. But we see things. Now, we don't imagine that everything is going to last forever. So in sort of the ordinary, everyday use of the word impermanent, we do understand the impermanence of things. And of course, 
in our culture, we even know that the sun is impermanent. We know the universe is impermanent. It's not that kind of impermanence that this is about. It's about the fact that everything is constantly changing. Everything is due to causes and conditions. So any, any object from, from a mountain to uh, a table to a person, any object is constantly changing due to causes and conditions. It's made up of parts, and every single one of those parts is constantly changing due to causes and conditions. And the parts are made up of smaller parts that are changing due to, constant, to, to causes and conditions. And we've had the advantage of being able to see things with time-lapse photography and things like that. So we know that even though some things may appear to stay the same, nothing really is. Everything is constantly changing. And that, nothing can, nothing will stay the same. But at a very deep level, there's part of your mind that keeps making an assumption that when you go home tonight, everything's going to be the same. And when you wake up tomorrow, everything's going to be the same. And next time you see your uh, brother or sister or husband or wife or friend or whatever, that they're still going to be there. It's going to be the same. And then we go through this horrible trauma when things aren't. Nothing lasts. Everything changes. But we've set ourselves up because we thought it was going to still be there. And we acted like it was going to still be there. They get in an argument with somebody you love and you say really nasty things and walk out and slam the door. Well, they'll be there later. I can always apologize next time, right? And then they're not. Oh, isn't that terrible? Anybody, I think most people that had somebody close to them die have experienced that kind of remorse about, oh, I wish I'd said, or I wish I hadn't done, so on and so forth. And where that comes from is we were behaving as though it was always going to be there. Everything changes. Every object is in constant state of flux and is in the process of passing away from the moment it comes into existence. Every person, likewise, they're not going to always be there. They're changing. Next time you see them, they're not the same person. But sometimes you're not going to see them again. Sometimes they're going to leave you. Uh, sometimes they're going to die. You know, uh, every situation, the situations that if you've invested so much time and energy for creating for yourself, the situation is constantly changing. At one level of your mind, you know that. But at the level that is responsible for your emotional reactions and for creating a lot of pain and suffering for yourself, you act as though it's not true. So the impermanence of things is definitely part of the illusion, and it's one of the causes of suffering. Very, very closely related to that is emptiness. Whatever that is. Well, first of all, emptiness that things are empty is <clears throat> as easy to understand and as obvious as the impermanence I just talked about. The same thing's true the next one we're going to get to, which is the impermanence and emptiness of the self that we think we are. 
all of, none of these things are difficult to understand in themselves. The well, only thing that makes them difficult is that we have a way of looking at things which makes it, which stands in the way of our seeing clearly. I used to teach physiology, and when students would come to me and they'd be struggling with something, I, I learned what to do. Let me find the assumption that they're operating on that is wrong, and once I pointed that out to them, they'll it'll all make sense to them, they'll be happy, and they'll leave satisfied, and they'll get good marks on the exam that I give them. You know? There's always things like, if I was teaching nerve and muscle cell action potentials, they got the positive and the negative signs switch. You know, that kind of thing. It, it was always some something that was just backwards of the way it was supposed to be. No matter how hard they tried, and they reread the text, and they listened to the lectures or recordings of my lectures, and that just, I can't understand it. It doesn't make sense. Well, it all comes down to, yeah, this one little thing you've got to tweak. You get that right, and then it all falls into place. And uh, <clears throat> emptiness. I remember when I began listening to people talk about emptiness and puzzling about it. And there's nothing more confusing than for somebody who doesn't understand something to try to explain it to you. <laughs> and there are so many people out there trying to do that, trying to explain emptiness, and they haven't got a clue, but, you know, they're quite willing to pretend that they can explain it. And when you get confused and puzzled and say, I don't understand it, it doesn't make sense, you know, then, well, that's all right, someday you'll be as smart as me. <laughs> And you'll just pretend. You know. Emptiness is pretty simple. Emptiness is that, in its simplest form, our mind jumps to conclusions. In its most, uh, in its deepest form, our mind jumps to conclusions about absolutely everything, to the extent that nothing of the picture of the world you have in your mind is really particularly close to the way things really are at all. That's what emptiness means. Your mind wants to see things. It takes the flux. You see, what impermanence really means is that there are no things. There is only flux. Everything is interconnected through cause and effect. And there is only this universe of flux, of processes that are driven by cause and effect. But our minds, evolution, put together some nerve cells that could function in this world of flux by performing this little trick of imposing thingness on little bits of the flux here and there. And then it could think to itself about the relationship between this thing and that thing and everything else. And it worked. It's worked really well. We do really well with this. Imposing this imaginary thingness on the reality of flux. But the truth is, reality is impermanent. It is flux. And it is empty of all of those things that we imagine. Everything is nothing but just, you know, an example I used in the handout, you know, the little whirlpool as the last of the water drains out of the bathtub. That's what all your things are. All your 
people, all your situations, your cars, your 401ks, your everything. They're just a temporary little twirl in the water as it goes down the drain to disappear <laughs> forever. <laughs> Would you, if I understand you, what you're saying is that if you have a pile of sand and there's a, a, a there's more sand coming down on this pile, and for a long time it can remain quite stable. You know, this is a classic yeah. thing that's used. And so the delusion is that the pile of sand is staying the same, whereas it's always changing because the sand is coming down and it's changing this pile of sand. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the pile collapses. Mm -hmm. You know, the critical sand particle and the pile collapses. So the impermanence piece is that all along it was changing. Mm -hmm. And the suffering comes in because suddenly you thought the pile was stable, but suddenly it collapses somebody dies or something in your life, the whole thing collapses. The delusion is that you thought it was stable all along, when all, all along it was changing. Okay, so then the emptiness thing, peace, if I am understanding you right, is the delusion. Yeah, it's, it's when we impose something on that moving process of sand that isn't there. When we start fantasizing how that pile of sand is going to be the foundation upon which we build our palace. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so the two are tremendously linked. Then. Tremendously linked. Yeah. Along the same line, trying to kind of, I see myself in, the, in over time in the attempt to grasp these different ideas, especially in permanence. Um, kind of two different ways of tackling, and I'm, I'm kind of just curious to see how you could clarify them. I mean, the one way which seems like the most steeped in delusion is like, take a mountain, right? Mm -hmm. um, the idea of like, okay, it's impermanent. So I can go with this very kind of gross level physical idea that, okay, if I look closely enough, I see vibrating, you know, strings and atoms and electrons, da, da, da. And even if I don't, there's like wind blowing over the mountain. What I assume is the mountain, what isn't the mountain, um, is kind of shifting, but there does seem to be a very kind of slow shift that's taking place. But I also realize that that's because I'm creating this idea of a mountain. Um, and that's not necessarily taking into account all these other things. Um, and then the other side is that that idea of the mountain is um, completely intertwined with my perception of it. And my perception of it is constantly changing, just from the point of view of like I look at it and I look away, and that entire experience has shifted. Is that kind of the angle for impermanence, or a better way of understanding it, or is that still kind of flawed? Well, it's it's uh, it, it's touching on some aspects, but it's it's still quite incomplete. You see, you know, it's like the pile of sand, or like uh, uh, like the the sand is falling and creating the mountain, or the mountain. They're both processes, not things, but we see them as things. And the whole basis for your seeing a mountain as a mountain is that you can walk up it and look across the valley. The whole basis for 
seeing a world of things is that it's a way everything is permeated by cause and effect and it's a, a way of of making sense by generating a thingness to account for functions so the mountain is something that your mind your imagination projects in order to account for the fact that if you walk up what seems to you like a mountain, you can see the valley. And you assume that you'll be able to keep doing that over and over again. What lies behind, what lies in fact, in truth, behind all of our projections of thingness are functions. Our mind creates things to account for functions. One of the examples that I gave you in the handout was a car. And I ask you to imagine a car that was missing one part, and then to imagine a car that consists of this one part, it just happens to be missing the rest. <laughs> and where between those two is the actual line where carness appears and where it disappears? And likewise, what if your car was made of marshmallow? Would it still be a car? And I suggested to you, if you could drive to Phoenix and back, you'd probably say, well, yeah, it's a different kind of car, but it's still a car. But if you sat on it, it just squishes, and you say, no, it's not a car. It just looked like a car. And these are some simple examples, but uh, I'm trying to encourage you all to think more deeply, and not just think more deeply, look more deeply into what's happening all around you. And what you're going to find is the more closely you look, that all of all of the sense that your mind makes of the world by projecting things is in order to account for functions. It's ultimately to to give your mind a handle on cause and effect within this constantly changing flux, which is reality. So, so does that mean that the objective is to really look at things from a functional standpoint and create just the viewpoint of functions in the world? I mean, so I call it a functional analysis in my lingo, right? So well, I, I don't think about the things that are implemented. I think about the things that are functional and what it does. That, that can certainly be a part of it. Yes, you could take that approach. But really the goal is just to make yourself more and more clearly and continuously aware that what I see is a projection of my mind. And let's take this to the next level where, uh, where it becomes really important. And as you say, taking a functionalist point of view is going to be very helpful. It's, it's going to help take you away from, from the attachment to thingness. But um, now, e even though everything is impermanent, and even though things are, this is the actual definition of emptiness, things are empty of being and ha having the kind of self-nature they appear to us to have, even though things are impermanent and empty in that way, it's not a problem as long as we're dealing with fairly simple things. And this is our consensual reality. We live, uh, and by the way, we all, we all live on our own private reality, but we didn't create it privately. <laughs> we created it consensually. 
And so our consensual reality, we have no trouble agreeing with about things like mountains and rocks and tile floors and fans and everything like that. It doesn't matter that they are that that thingness is a shared projection. It doesn't matter that they're impermanent. It works. It works really, really well. But as the thing, as the processes that we're imposing thingness upon become more complex and more sophisticated, and as the values we attach and the judgments we make become correspondingly more complex and sophisticated and have more profound consequences, it starts to make a really big difference. And a good example is other people. No one in this room is seen the same way by any two people. Everyone in this room sees this more or less the same way. No one sees me the same way, or you, or anyone else. So there are many things that are very important to our lives and to our experience that we all perceive totally differently. They're part of our subjective reality. Situations, social groups, all of these kinds of things, we experience them in a totally different way from each other. Because they're made up of things like this, where our consensual reality works, we can communicate about them fairly well. But as you come to understand the true emptiness of things, you realize every single one of us is living in our own private universe. And consensual reality is just that part of it that we share. And that explains why two of us may be in very, very similar circumstances, and one of us may be miserable, and one of us may be completely happy. And some of the other examples that I gave you here. Uh, let's see. The biggie that I always see is with reality and truth. You know, when we're trying to communicate and. Yeah. What we're trying to do whenever we communicate is to arrive at a, a consensual reality. And when, when we're trying to communicate about the things that we are right now, we're trying to arrive at a consensual reality at, about a, at a much higher level, at a, more, a much more complex level. But. So to Adasa, then equanimity then is a, a truly attained by a person who has really, really integrated the understanding of impermanence and emptiness. So well, e yeah, equanimity comes from yeah. insights into impermanence yeah. and emptiness. Absolutely, that's right. Yeah, that has to be right because any event or anything, anything, anything that happens in that person's life is seen from the perspective. Exactly. And it's 
accepted and, it, and everything is seen as process, process, process. There's two major sources of equanimity, two things that we do in this path to cultivate equanimity. And they reinforce each other very strongly, but they produce equanimity in different ways. One is when we develop sanata, we experience joy, happiness, tranquility, and it gives rise to an equanimity. The reason it does is that we're experiencing happiness that comes from within. It has nothing to do with anything out there. And as a matter of fact, in meditation, as you experience samatha, you see that this is actually a much better kind of happiness than the kind of happiness that you get just from things out there. And so as you, so as you experience this happiness that comes from within, that's not dependent upon things outside, then when good things and bad things happen to you, you don't react to them as much. You're much more willing to let the good things go, let the bad things happen. That's equanimity. That's the equanimity that comes from samatha. And then the other equanimity that you're talking about is the equanimity of insight. The more you come to really understand the impermanence and emptiness of everything, and then the other part of it is the impermanence and emptiness of the self we think we are, that itself produces equanimity exactly as you described there. So you have, so the, the path is giving you two different sources of equanimity, and they're going to keep getting stronger as you continue to practice. And they're very empowering too. Your mind, your mind is continuously doing its thing. And when your equanimity becomes strong enough, it's going to, in a moment, come up to the point where the next thing it would do is to generate a big wave of craving, and it won't do that. Your mind is going to turn its back on that and say, I'm not doing that this time. And what we experience then is what's called nirvana, nibbana. You experience the cessation of craving, the cessation of all mental fabrications, and you have an experience of just pure being of things the way they are. And it, it constitutes really the most profound insight experience that you can have. You have all kinds of wonderful insight experiences like I discussed earlier that are leading up to this and as your insight becomes more powerful, your equanimity becomes more powerful. At some point you'll have so much insight and so much equanimity that your mind will quit playing the game for a moment, and it only needs to quit playing the game for a moment. And in that moment, you'll have an experience that is profoundly revealing. Okay. First, you, I, I need to rehear a couple words. You said there were two sources of equanimity, and I didn't get them. Samatha and insight. Concentration and insight, or samadhi and insight. Okay, then the hard one. Um, if all of us agree that it's all a projection, that both the creation of thingness and purpose are things that we apply, mm -hmm. then if that were to vanish for all of us, 
how um, how would we create any kind of consensus at all? How would we interact if we if we if everyone in this room suddenly were capable of dropping thingness and purpose from from their application of of yeah, what that, they're looking well, at? That, then then that's a good question. Yes. How do we interact? I I'd just be I'd I'd be a wreck. Okay. How you how you're going to interact with if we all Drop the illusion. You're not going to be a wreck. It's going to be absolutely wonderful. Yippee! What does that look like? Your mind and my mind are going to continue to do the only thing they can do. The tricks. The only way my mind can make sense of, of things is to impose the appearance of thingness. And the only way your mind is to impose the appearance of thingness. But if you and I both know that our minds are doing that, and then we find ourselves in a situation where you're saying, yes it is, and I'm saying, no it isn't, we say, wait a minute, okay. <laughs> that we, you're only saying one thing that's different than what I'm saying, because your mind is projecting something different than mine. And if, if we're both wise enough to realize that well, my mind's just doing this because it has its collection of past conditioning, and your mind is doing what it's doing because it has its collection of past conditioning. Let's take the basis of consensual understanding that we have and see if we can, we can work our way up to both having a similar perception of whatever this is that we have conflict about. Buddhism has propagated across the world and many different cultures. How... Does this trick work when my base assumptions are completely, absolutely 180 from the guy across the world that I am talking to? Like, I, I see a lot of friction going on because, oh, you know, those guys from that foreign country, they're just wrong, they're crazy. And, yeah, that's and, right. and now we have to have a war. And... Um, because, we'll, we'll, you know, every right-thinking whatever knows X. That's right. And, and the way uh, we tell a right-thinking whatever is if they agree with me or not. Then right, right, yeah. And so, so, then, so, so now Buddhism has propagated this trick. And a lot of cultures have heard it. And some of them said, we're on board. And this is an imaginary future. This is, well, I'm actually trying to figure out I'm, I'm, I'm solving the problems of the world right, right at the moment. Yeah. Uh, uh, I want to know how, how, okay, this looks like it's going to completely crash a culture once it enters it, because you, like, for instance, uh, the stuff going on in the Middle East, if you dumped a heaping dump truck load of this kind of thinking, Onto that it would necessarily say they would necessarily say, well, okay, maybe we have to not do that monotheistic thing. Um, oh, it would it would it would change it. So the only way to get out from under these frictions is it, it just keeps. Uh, I you know the okay. situation that exists right now is about as bad as it possibly could be. Okay. There's no reason why. You know, all, all these people in Arab countries began to understand, understand impermanence and emptiness that they would have to drop the monotheistic thing. The only thing they'd have to drop is the idea that they have to impose it on everybody else. 
which would be a huge step forward. Okay. There's nothing in this that makes you have to adopt the monotheistic thing, but it allows you to see that that it allows you to stop insisting that what I see is what is, and it's right. And uh, if you don't see the same way, you're not right thinking there's something wrong with you. You're probably evil. So then, what happens to a so then what happens to a Buddhist culture if a bunch of army people walk in and say we're here to impose our view on you now, and they're saying wait no you're 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 really you're really projecting this, and um, and then it would probably be more effective and skillful means that we as a Buddhist culture could could respond to that way. Okay, I'll stop now. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and it wouldn't take much to be more skillful than what the present culture would respond to it. So the answer is we continue to do our little tricks of creating thingness. We just all agree we know we're doing it. Well, now this, this is the thing that we're talking about here. If we overcome delusion, it's going to change the way our minds work. It doesn't mean that we're not going, that our mind isn't going to organize information in the same way it always has. It's going to continue to organize information as a construct consisting of, of, of things. And if I may, it, it will let you be a little more flexible on what you place in categories or functions. That's right. It's going to, it, so but can, knowing, knowing that this is just a limitation of the instrument I'm using, and I don't have to believe that it's, ab you know, that's the problem. The problem comes from the belief that the illusion is projected is true. And we're about to get to the, to the, to the part of the illusion with the nastiest consequences. Um, to understand the impermanence and emptiness of the things of the world is a really important thing, but it is far from being the most important thing. The root of our suffering, the cause of the craving, or I should say the cause of the suffering, the root of the craving, I have to keep my terminology <laughs> consistent. Anyway, is the delusion and believing that the impermanent and empty is real is only one part of it. The most important part of it is that we believe the self is real. And that it's the belief in the self that necessitates the craving. There is an absolute, inevitable, incontrovertible logic. If the universe consists of self and other, we are at war. Especially if the self believes that its happiness or suffering depends on its interaction with others. And that's the third part of the delusion. So we're deluded in thinking that the trick our mind plays in order to allow us to function, which is a wonderful trick, and it does allow us to function. It's a really good thing. That's part one of the delusion. B believing that the world we see really is the way it appears to us to be. Now, if we can see, if we can understand that it's empty, if we can see it as empty, even while our mind makes good use of the illusion that it's, it's in a different way. 
And the second part of the problem is the self. We believe that there is a permanent and non-empty self here. And that is, that is the nastiest part of the delusion. And what comes from that, then the third part of the delusion is that my happiness and my suffering are the result of, my, of, of the interaction between myself and other. So I've established this boundary. I've separated myself from the rest of the universe. And now the only way I can be happy and the only way I can protect myself is to turn that boundary into a war zone. I'm, com I'm competing with you for what I need. I see you as separate entities and this separate entity has to compete with you for what it needs and you have to compete with me. And there's no end to it. Yeah. And is it, is it also that we project onto other people that they can provide us a source of satisfaction? That, yes, absolutely. something to be grasped there. We, we project onto people and things that they are going to give us the happiness that we need. And they can't. And they can't. They absolutely cannot. Even if they want to, and they try their absolute best, they can't. Because your happiness is ultimately, I mean, no matter what another person does out there, you're living in a universe that you've created. And that's going to either make you happy or not, what your mind projects you as being. Yeah. Okay. Well, that works until you drop it down to what you were discussing yesterday of the Jains. Uh, at some point, there's, there's, how can I say this, like incontrovertible need. That, well, the, the, the Jains were still assuming that I'm a self and there's another, and they decided to be nice and try to avoid hurting the other. Okay. But they were still locked in the same delusion. So if I give up the delusion of self and other, it's okay if I step on the ant. If you give up, the, <laughs> if you give up the delusion of self and other, it will allow you to solve the problem in a very different way. I'm still going to need food. Yes, you are. Absolutely. There's no question. You're still going to need food. And if the termites are need eating your house, you're going to have to do something about it. That doesn't sound like the end of the war zone of competition. Well, what we're talking about here is the war zone that we're constantly creating due to our illusions. The fact that the, the world functions the way it does, uh, even though our understanding of the way it functions is limited by the capacities of our mind to understand, we still have to work with that. You know? But we now have, we now don't need to be creating a war zone out of it. We don't need to be separating self from other. And that's the part that you're going to find over and over again is so hard as you go along in this, is the mind... That, that's why the hardest thing to understand is the emptiness of the self. It's comparatively easy to recognize that, hey, yeah, it's all, all of this is empty. It's not really the way it appears to be. But the emptiness of self, that's really hard to grasp. And you're going to keep struggling with it. And while you're in the process of cultivating mundane right view 
as you're studying these things, and this is going to come up again, I'm sure, when we start talking about karma, as you're studying these things and trying to understand them and figure them out, your mind is going to keep trying to, to interpret everything from the point of view of the reality of a separate self. And you're going to have to keep going back and challenging that over and over again. And what you are doing right now is you're coming up with objections and problems that are the result of taking one description and smuggling in the idea of a separate self and ending up with all these problems. Well, these it's exactly these apparent problems that come from the idea of a separate self that is the whole problem in the, you know, it's the very root. It's what's behind it all. So yeah. what's the I'm going to go back to your car analogy, yeah. the marshmallow, and, and selflessness and self uh, uh, being a delusion, which is a construct of the fact that we've got a body and a structure that's sort of like the car, right, going to Phoenix. Right. Yeah. Except I don't quite get what the function now of our body is. It, what the end result is, is to create a unique self, because that sort of seems to be one, one of the functions of, of the mind, is, right, to, to self preserve and, and be able to make order of everything. So I sort of wonder, has anybody pondered that in the context of what we're talking about? And so what's the real function? Because it would seem like if you didn't have a body, this would be a whole lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you didn't have a body, this would be a whole lot easier. Um, I mean, I say that from the chief, but... Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that, that, that is something that we could think about and talk about, like it might be entertaining. <laughs> Let's keep in mind, I'm trying to describe to you, I'm not trying to, well, I'm trying to describe to you the reality that lies behind your delusions and the nature of your delusions. And so, Thinking in terms of, well, if I believed what you're saying, but I still feel like a separate self, you know, that's that's not going to be helpful at this point. What what you really need to do is to just accept this description as a possibility, because everything else, the other seven parts of the path, actually even I should say the other seven and a half parts of the path, because when we get to talking about causality and intention, they're all about how you get past this obstacle of your mind wanting to interpret everything on the basis that you are a self-existent self. Okay. So let's just continue with it and, you know, let's talk about the impermanent and empty self. What does that mean? You know, and some people get really upset at that idea. Are you telling me I don't exist? Yes. Well, no, I'm not telling you I don't exist. But I'm telling you that what does exist doesn't have the qualities that I know you are assuming that yourself does. Because, you know, yes, you exist. You consist of a body and a mind. But when you you, the self that you feel like 
from the self that you imagine that corresponds to that feeling, I can tell you what its characteristics are. You think, there's only one of me. Right? Don't you feel that way? There's only one of me. It doesn't feel like us inside. It feels like me. I. What? There's only one of me. And it's always been the same me. I can remember way back when, and it was the same me that I am now. I grant you that my body has changed, and my mind has changed, and many things have changed. But that essence that I feel as myself, you know, that hasn't changed. I've always, there's only one of me, and it was me yesterday, and it was me last week, and it was me last year. And the third thing is, that, that that there's me and there's not me, and I know the difference. You know, present me with anything and ask me a question. I can tell you whether it's me or not. Is is this you? No, it's not you. Wow. We could go through all kinds of things like that. So you feel the self that you believe you are. You feel there is one, relatively enduring and separate self. Now, if we look at the reality, yes, you exist. You have a body, it's real. may not be the way you imagine it to be, but it's real nonetheless. You have a mind. And it may not be quite what you think your mind is, but that doesn't matter, your mind is real. What the Buddha did is he said, all right, an individual consists of a body and mind, and he thought about it, and he said, and the mental part of it consists of of feelings, perceptions, mental constructs, and consciousness. The physical part of it, well, the physical part of it really, if you get right down to it, only consists of sensations. But because of those sensations, because of touch and sight and things like that, you infer that there is a body, and you refer that that body is pretty much contiguous with a material universe. So you, as an individual, consists of these five collections of things. These collections of sensations, which are perceived as a self and a world of objects, on the basis of all these mental formations that have you've accumulated over a lifetime. You know, when you came into the world, you didn't know what cars were or anything else. It's all stuff you learned as you went along. And actually you didn't teach it to yourself, most of it you picked up from other people around you. And being young and naive, you took their word for it. And most of it you've never questioned. Ooh, that's something to be concerned about. Anyway, so you are this huge collection of sensations, this huge collection of impressions of mental constructs by which your mind has created meaning out of these sensations. You are this huge collection of perceptions. Every time a new set of sensations arises, your, your mind looks through its collection of mental formations and it says, oh, this must be this. And it, you have a new perception. Oh, this is this. This is a mean, nasty guy or whatever it is. Right? A perception associated with these things, there is a feeling, it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and it gives rise to a conscious experience. That's what you are. 
And what the Buddha invited you to do, and I certainly invite you to do too, is to try to understand clearly these five aggregates. Um, if you understand clearly what they're referring to, that is an important first step. But it's a pretty easy one. As long as you don't... You could be confused by people who haven't understood the purpose of the five aggregates. The purpose of the five aggregates is to describe absolutely everything that makes you up as a unique individual. Absolutely everything that you would use to establish your identity to yourself. Absolutely everything that you... that this being that exists consists of. And if you understand what the five aggregates are clearly enough, then you can do what the Buddha asked people to do. This was actually his second great teaching. The first one was the Four Noble Truths and the Turning of the Dharma Sutra. The second teaching was on not-self. And in it, he laid out that an individual, what an individual really consists of is not some single, enduring, unchanging, separate self wearing the mantle of a body, but what the individual consists of is the body and a mind, and these five aggregates describe it. And then his challenge was, look in there and satisfy yourself that I haven't left anything out. First of all, make sure that this is an adequate description. If you find something that's left out, then we've got a problem. One, either, either the description of the five aggregates is flawed, or, uh, or else they haven't been properly understood. There's only two possibilities. Now you will, if you pursue this, you can satisfy yourself on an intellectual basis very firmly that yes, absolutely everything that I could possibly draw upon as a component of my self-identity is included in there. All of my memories, all of my thoughts, all of my past conditioning, all of my beliefs, everything. In each moment, as each moment unfolds, what's there? Well, there's, there's sensation, there's consciousness, there's perception, there's the mental formations. The mental formations that are newly created as a result of this experience, but the way this experience is perceived and the feelings that I have in response to it are the result of, our, of my past mental formations. So you can see that this, these, five, these five categories are constantly unfolding and we're, we're adding to them, we're adding to the, the collections and we're adding to ourself as we go along moment by moment. But nothing's left out. Everything's included in there. So then the Buddha says, fine, now, now that you're satisfied that your true self must be in there somewhere, let's look for it. See if you can find any element in any of those five collections that is you. Or any combination of elements that is you. Or any one of those aggregates that is the real you. Or any combination of those aggregates that is the real you. And remember, the real you we're talking about, he's already said, these five aggregates are the real you. The real you we're looking, that we're looking for is the one unchanging, separate you. And you're not going to find anything that has those qualities. There's nothing in there with those qualities. 
And so that one allows us to say, okay, the self that I think I am, what is it really? Well, it's really a whole collection of parts that is constantly changing due to causes and conditions. This sounds familiar, didn't we already say this? Totally interconnected with everything else. Just, it's, it's just as impermanent and just as empty as everything else. The thing that you didn't say, but is an obvious consequence of what you did say, is there's a result. There's a function. Yeah. Well, okay. It's, it's a bit like um, a melody that's being played. I mean, you hit the various notes. Each, each key is a different thing. But there's a result as a result of doing all of that. Mm-hmm. To me, that would be the self. The, the ever-changing result of all of these things that, are, that you touched on, the perceptions, the, the sensations. Sometimes you need a particular perception. If there's a Bengal tiger over there, it's looking pretty hungry, you need to perceive that. Mm-hmm. If there isn't one there, but there happens to be a chocolate cake that you might like a piece of, that's a different, different perception. The awareness of all of these things happening would be what I would say is myself. Yeah. Well, now, and that is, that is what happens. How, when, when people look at the five aggregates, they're always going to come back and say, well, consciousness, 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 that's, that's my real self, consciousness. Yeah, but you got consciousness is plural. <laughs> consciousness is plural. Yes, one day, one day we're going to have a talk about what is consciousness. Yeah, and one day we should have a, a, a talk about consciousness. Let me just give you a, a, a brief, uh, a, a teaser about consciousness, okay? If you examine consciousness, you find that they're plural. That consciousness is actually, you have different kinds of consciousness. Six corresponding to your five senses and consciousness of mental objects. So. So there's plural consciousnesses, and these consciousnesses arise and pass away. Right? So there's nothing enduring. They arise and pass away very, very quickly, in fact. And, of course, they are due to causes and conditions. So consciousness, in that sense, certainly doesn't fit the bill. But what we're looking at is consciousness of. What is consciousness without an object? An interesting idea. Now, first of all, we realize that we can't really we can't really imagine consciousness without an object, because whenever we we look at our conscious experience and ever we try to think about it, we always have to have an object. There has to be it has to be consciousness of. But on the other hand. There's a part of us that says, but, you know, still, I know that there's something that is distinct from the object. So, in each moment of consciousness, yes, there's consciousness of, but there's a part of it that is distinct from the object. And so, we can't, even though we can't really imagine what pure consciousness would be like, it seems to us like 
there really should be such a thing. And I'll agree with you. Now, is that yourself? Here's a little thought experience. A little thought experiment. Just that pure consciousness by itself. What would distinguish my consciousness from yours? Your consciousness from hers? That pure consciousness has no individuality. Now, what people do, what people do, well, first of all, I'll tell you a story. There was a, a, a bhikkhu, a son of a fisherman, his name was Sati, and I believe he was probably a stream enterer, and he puzzled over this. You know, he realized that his personality view, his ego self was not real. He realized that that was transparent. That, that, that had become transparent to him. He realized that, that it was just a fabrication of the mind. And he's probably a pretty bright person. So he pondered this, and he came to the conclusion that his true self was consciousness. And in those days, everybody believed in reincarnation. So the form in which he put it was, ah, I know what's reborn. Consciousness. Not consciousness of a particular thing. Consciousness, pure consciousness. And so he went around and started telling everybody that. And word got back to the Buddha, and the Buddha went and looked up Sati, and he said, you foolish man, have you, <laughs> have you ever heard me say that? And what have you heard me say? He, he straightened him out on that point. But that keeps happening over and over again. I think it's a very common thing when people achieve stream entry and they, they still feel this inherent sense that there is, there is this some kind of a self, even though they know their ego self is not it anymore. They're, they're well past that. They try to reconcile this, and they almost always land on consciousness and say, that must be my true self. And then if they think about it, and they realize, yeah, but consciousness, it's undifferentiated. How's my consciousness different than anybody or anything else's consciousness? Consciousness is consciousness. So then they say, ah, it's cosmic consciousness. It's universal consciousness. That's my true self. And there's a bit of, there's a bit of truth and there's a bit of delusion in this. Consciousness is an inherent property of ultimate reality. Consciousness exists. And there is such a thing as pure consciousness. And very many, very many of the occasions wherein somebody has had the experience that, that bumped them over the threshold and into the stream entry, they've had a pure conscious experience. When the, when the mind ceases fabricating, when you have experience of nirvana and the mind ceases fabricating, if you remain conscious, you have an experience of consciousness without an object. You have an experience of pure consciousness. After that, you can understand pure consciousness at least in the same... You can't make sense of it in your mind. Your mind can't wrap itself around it. But you know you've experienced it. And so there's a tendency to say, okay, that's it. That's my true self. Cosmic consciousness, universal consciousness. And like I say, it's a mixture of truth and fiction. 
there is that universal consciousness. It's a property of ultimate reality. But it's not yours. It has nothing to do with the self. And so this is where the mind's playing its game again. It's going to try to co-opt universal consciousness as itself. Yeah? Can you say that this universal consciousness is also emptiness? Oh, yes. You could say, yes. And nirvana is... Is an experience, an experience of, of this emptiness yeah. or universal consciousness. Nirvana is an experience and, of emptiness. And that's a stream enter. And that's what? And that's a stream enter. This, well, let's be clear here. To become a stream enter doesn't mean you've had a particular experience. It has nothing to do with any particular experience. A stream enter is somebody whose way of seeing things has permanently changed. The a collection of insights and in some cases but not all a single profound experience can be as I say something that bumps them over that threshold basically provides the information that trickles down reprograms at a deep level and they are forever changed but it is the fact that they are permanently changed in the way they view things that makes them a stream enterer not the experience you can have that experience and not become a stream enterer uh-huh. See, both in, in the yogic philosophy and in the Buddhist philosophy, I've heard of this samadhi of 15, 20 minutes of experiencing this universal consciousness or emptiness. And, that, and that's a place where there's no turning back to. It, and what I would say, it, it can be. If the mind has been properly prepared, it probably will be. But it is not necessarily the case. There is no experience that is necessarily in and of itself going to make the permanent change in the psyche that makes somebody a street not train. And the converse of that is somebody can become a stream entrant and not have any particular experience that they can remember and think of that mark the transition. And so that is, yeah, I'm glad that this came up because this is amongst the misconceptions that we have inherited as as, uh, Buddhism has come here. A big part of it is the idea that enlightenment is this bolt of lightning from the sky that you're instantly transformed. And we tend to think of it as the experience. It's all about the experience. I've got to have that experience. Once I've had that experience, I'll be done. I'm there. It'll change me. But it's not. It's the work that comes up to it, and then one of those experiences can finish the job if you've done the work leading up to it. But if you haven't, you could have those experiences and you're still not changed. Would you repeat, what is the delusion um, portion of the the, uh, one consciousness? The delusion is that it is an individual self. It's the same. It, it, It shows up again some of you looking at some of the Mahayana literature will come across the mind stream idea. And that is a very valid idea. It's a wonderful metaphor for how the illusion of individuality is generated. But it is so often misunderstood and people take the mind stream and instead of it being understood as a metaphor for how an illusion of individuality is generated, it is turned into an individual mind stream. 
And an individual mind stream is just another make-believe self. So I didn't, I've never heard you use this word so far, but in terms of talking universal consciousness and mind stream, can I also interpose the word energy? Because energy is sort of a nebulous thing that's converse of matter where we live. Yeah, yeah a, a lot of people find the, the word energy precisely because of its nebulousness a really good word to use when talking about this. And on the one hand, it's, it's very, the very nebulousness that makes it work makes it also unsatisfactory, but still, it, it does give us a word that we can use that um, it can be a basis for communication. Yeah. With the five aggregates, how does um, intention fit in? Intention? Yeah. Intention is one of the mental formations. Okay. It's one of the aggregates of mental formation. Basically, mental formations is, it includes all of the things the mind does. So it includes emotions, it includes thoughts, it includes memories, it includes intentions, all of, all of this stuff is, is there. And would emotions be distinct from feelings? Like feeling would be the positive, negative, neutral components of emotion or of uh, intention. Yeah. No, feeling is regarded as something different. It's, uh, it's something in and of itself. So the aggregate of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, is affected by mental formations. And mental formations, when they become an object of consciousness, also generate a feeling. So, you know, an emotion is either pleasant or unpleasant, and a thought can be pleasant or unpleasant, and so on and so forth. But it, uh, the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is something that's quite distinct from the, from the activity, the processing activities of the mind. 